welcome to Knowing Nature, a podcast about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm Victor. And I'm Annabeth. And this week, we're going on another tour through the mm, Mammal Hall. A part two of a tour of So last week, I did a family-oriented or younger audience-oriented tour through the gallery. Mm-hmm. This week, Annabeth is doing a more general audience adult tour. Mm-hmm. More for adults for different groups. Excellent. Well, let's let's get to the gallery. Hmm. Okay, so welcome again to the Mammal Hall or the Mammal Gallery. Now, mammals for me are definitely one of my favourite groups, um, but because I think purely because there's more to them than meets the eye. So when people think of mammals, they generally think of your cute, cuddly dogs, your sheep, lions and things like that. Really, really fun, really friendly. They're just everyone kind of loves mammals. But like I said, more to them than meets the eye, and that's what I'm going to try and shed a light on today. So just some background, the, the idea that mammals do range in size from the vast blue whale, which is the biggest animal that's ever existed, all the way down to things like the bumblebee bat, which is so small, can almost fit on your thumbnail or even small. And the idea that that's a mammal with a full organ set up and vertebrate and everything. It's just it's just a bit crazy. That's how amazing mammals are. And they are found all over planet Earth. And scientists currently estimate that there are around five five and a half thousand species of mammals. Sounds like quite a lot, but when you actually compare that to our other groups, really, really small portion of that. And still within that relatively small number of species, there's mm-hmm. still such huge variation. Oh, exactly, exactly. So generally with mammals, they all kind of follow some similar trends to put them in that group, and they all feed their young milk, some sort of milk, some sort yeah. of sustenance. Ma- mammary glands. Mammary glands, yeah, that's where that's where that name comes from. They all have hair as well at some point in their life. So for instance, whales and things like that will have hair in the womb, mm-hmm. uh, which they'll then lose later on. Um, and some of them still have little scruff, little... Exactly, hairs. which is kind of odd. You kind of, when you think kind of hairy mammals, you maybe think gorillas, chimpanzees, you know, it's like that. When you actually think of things in the ocean, like your dolphins, your whales, your belugas, it's kind of odd to think, yes, they have hair at some point. Um, they also, every single mammal has three tiny ear bones that sets them apart from all yeah. other groups. The thing I'm really interested in mammals is actually their diverse reproductive strategies, and it's what I'm going to be focusing on today, as we can actually put our mammals into three rough groups, all about how they reproduce. And we call these the eutheria, the metatheria, and the prototheria, which are very, very scientific words. That's very scientific Very scientific words, basically meaning our monotremes, our marsupials, and our placentals. And I'm going to get into this a bit more, so don't worry. It sounds, again, very scientific terms, but we'll get into a bit more. So we'll start off, actually, with are placentals because that's us humans mm-hmm. are in placentals and it's basically giving birth sort of live young having the womb mm-hmm. they grow inside and then yes nine months or depending well nine months for people various other yeah. duration times the classic thing that most people think of as another factor that defines mammals mm-hmm. is that they give birth to live young they don't lay eggs that kind mm-hmm. of thing. yeah but exactly so that's what and actually the placentals make up the largest group of the mammals so this is what your cows your sheep your puppy things like that us humans we're all placental so mammals. So we've taken that group and we've stereotyped mm-hmm. all mammals with it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a and huge... it's obliterated that diversity, yeah. that stereotype. But they're still really, really exciting. It's still an incredible... It's kind of the beauty of life. Now, our placentals, the one I kind of want to focus on today, has its own little story, and it is the pangolin. Now, have you? are you familiar with this pangolin? This is our first case They here. are. They look like... They're like the anteater from last week, mm-hmm. kind of, aren't they? They've got that kind of long mm-hmm. nose... But they're most known for having those like scales almost. So I'm really glad you picked that up because they're known as the scaly anteater. But actually, they're not anteaters at all. They're in their own sort of group. And there are currently eight species of pangolin in the world. And those scales that you can see, they're overlapping their entire body. is actually made of keratin, the same thing that makes up our fingernails and our hair. Only theirs is 
really, really, really strong. And similar to things like armadillos and other animals, when threatened, they can actually curl up into a ball. Mm -hmm. So those pangolin scales kind of consume their whole body and they can actually protect them from attacks from things as large as hyenas and lions. Wow. Pangolins, for me, is one of my favourite animals. I think they're incredibly charismatic. They're also adorable looking. But unfortunately, the kind of sad side to this is that actually the pangolins are in a lot of trouble. They are one of our critically endangered mammals that we have. And in the past decade or so, it's believed that over a million of them have actually been killed and hunted, poached, as part of the illegal wildlife trade Mm -hmm. um, for their scales, for those amazing scales you can see covering their entire body. Because it's believed in sort of Chinese traditional medicine and things like that, that their scales, when crushed, can actually be used to cure a variety of ailments from insomnia to menstrual cramps to infertility, Mm -hmm. everything, that whole range of things. So they're actually hunted for their scales by the kilo. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's their... Despite the fact that their scales are basically fingernails. Yes, exactly. So it's one of these things of kind of, this is why finding out more about pangolin is so important it's kind of spreading the word because a lot of people don't even know that even though this is one of the most critically endangered animals on the planet not many people even know they exist Mm -hmm. which is why i definitely wanted to highlight this one on my tour because i think awareness is its biggest asset in trying to save a little guy because other than being super cute i don't want them to go anywhere anytime soon so pangolins, you said, are placental mammals. Yes, just like us. Mm-hmm. Which means that they keep the baby in the womb and mm-hmm. then give birth to a live young. Mm-hmm, exactly. Like, you, like our, our standard definition mm-hmm. for a mammal. Exactly, yeah. And they're actually, pangolin birth, I think, is just super adorable because their gestation period, so how long they have it in the womb, is up to five months. And they give birth to just one baby. And this little baby, sometimes affectionately, is known as a pangu pup. I know, it just gets cuter and cuter. And they're only about six inches long. And those scales, that keratin, isn't super hard. So they stay with their mother the whole time when they're born. And sometimes they're found to be like clinging on her back or on her tail as she moves around. And those over time, those then scales turn kind of a browner color and harden. So it's actually protective as well and i should mention that pangolins although four-limbed they actually when they move around they actually only walk on two limbs and their front limbs are quite short almost look a little bit like t-rex arms so if you ever have a chance to watch any videos of pangolins i highly recommend it because they kind of run as if they're shuffling to try and get away from something it's really quite funny actually so they like they're like really hunched over yeah they look like hunched over. it looks like they've just done something super sneaky and they're trying to get away from it oh i see yeah okay because those arms are basically just claws to help break into getting, getting food. So they walk on their hind legs. Mm-hmm, yeah, really incredible. And that tail, oh. that really long tail stretches out and actually acts as a counterbalance for them. Pretty cool. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So that was my example of the placental mammal. I'm going to move on to the next one, which is what we call our marsupial group. So marsupials are quite friendly. So we're going to head down to the marsupial cabinet now. So welcome to the marsupials. Now, I'm making the assumption you're familiar with marsupials, Victor, yeah? Mm -hmm. These are the ones with pouches. Pouches, yes. That's what most people, when they think of marsupials, they think of Australia. And yes, whilst Australia has a lot of them, there are actual marsupials that live in South America, New Guinea, and even the opossums you can find in North America as well. But the majority of them are found in Australia. And I'm actually going to be focusing on one of them in particular, Mm -hmm. the kangaroo. Uh, The most charismatic and famous of all. The most well-known. Yeah, exactly. Carrying baby little pouch at the front. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So the kangaroos um, are just incredible, incredible animals. Um, So the idea, if you're not familiar with marsupials, is the idea that their young grows up in a pouch. So... If the baby develops in the pouch, do they still have a womb? I am so happy you asked this question because yes, they technically do. But not only that, kangaroos have three vaginas and two uteruses or uteri, I guess you can say, which is kind of mind boggling. So that they not only have, they don't just have one womb, they have two. Yeah, which helps them be, I think this is one of the features that makes kangaroos such a successful group. 
Because when you have the joey in the pouch, and then the joey leaves the pouch and the pouch becomes available, the next baby will actually be born and move into the pouch, and then the fertilized egg that's elsewhere can then start developing, start developing and become a new fetus. It's so they can have three kind of offspring on different stages of development simultaneously. Wow. It blows my mind completely. It's just so just like us, their egg um, would actually form an implant in the uterus, mm-hmm. but there's limited actual placental connection. Yeah. I think we are famous for like, you know, having the placenta and having the cord and things like that. Theirs is much limited and much, much smaller. Right. So they've got not as full-on a, a baby support system exactly. inside. Exactly, because when the baby is born, it's so, so small. It's tiny. It's like I said, the size of a jelly bean or yeah. something like that. So they And got... all they need are tiny little arms. So once they come out of the, the opening, they kind of climb their way up through the hair to get into the pouch and basically latch onto one of four nipples that the mother has in her pouch. And I think it's just crazy. These tiny little things are kind of relatively useless yeah. because they actually don't have the muscles formed in their mouth to suck the milk. So basically wow. the nipple gets shoved in and the nipple itself actually enlarges to fill the entire space on the baby Joey's mouth wow. and just starts seeping in milk until it can grow and grow. Mind-blowing. That is amazing. And yeah, and it's just crazy. So from tiny jelly bean up to the mm-hmm. full-size Joey that it's just on milk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the actual like pregnancy side of it that's inside yeah. the mother is only about 28 days, which kind of makes you understand how, why this thing is so tiny when yeah, it comes out. Yeah, it's quite short. Yeah, yeah, 28 days is no time. At around like six months is when the joey is like actually Fully leaving the... No, no, leaving the pouch but coming back for meals. So Ooh. sort of like that child you have that goes off to university but comes back every weekend to get their laundry and food done. So you could <laughs> have then up to mm-hmm. two joeys mm-hmm. coming in and out of the pouch at the same so time they actually kangaroos are able to suckle two joeys simultaneously so twins i guess so then well. the math kind of mm-hmm. all works but they can have one in the pouch and one outside and actually produce the different milks that that joey needs in its developmental stage you make more than one kind of milk yeah this is why what? they're incredible okay so mm-hmm. you could, she could have then mm-hmm. one gestating inside mm-hmm. And then it comes out into the pouch. Mm-hmm. And then after a month, she could have another baby mm-hmm. be born and go into the pouch. Exactly. And by that time, the first baby is big enough to kind of get out of the pouch. Mm-hmm. Quite a bit, but come, come back, back still hungry. While the, the other sibling is, is still kind of grown up inside mm-hmm. there. Wow. Incredible, right? That Andrew's, is one yeah. and I think hardworking mother. That is one hardworking mother, yeah. And she's, she's just doing it all. On her own, you know? I'm proud of her. I, around. So the, yeah. the males, like, they, they don't take care of the babies at all? No, there's no paternal care with wow, kangaroos. so she really does do it on her own. Yeah, she is the definition of the hardworking single mom. Wow, well done kangaroos. Well done kangaroos, yeah. Because they're doing quite mm-hmm. well in Australia, aren't they? Yeah, they have no, they really, I say no, but little to no natural predators. The only predators are us, and a lot of them actually get hit by cars, and they are seen as pests. Um, and the other thing is actually recently discovered dingoes. Mm-hmm. So that wild dog that we have in Australia actually hunt them as well. So they're kind of the two, but relatively that the kangaroo numbers are huge in Australia. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Definitely one of my favourites though. And I think it's incredible that for red kangaroos especially, I think the big part of it, other than looking at the reproductive, is they're famous for their jumping, for their hopping. Yeah, and, and they're, they're big animals. Big. This one here is like mm-hmm. nearly the size of a person. Mm-hmm. They can jump up to nine meters in a single bound. That is a huge bound. Yeah. Now, is that with a joey in the pouch as well? I would assume so. Wow. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe it's the males that have no no burden, no baggage. <laughs> they can jump the farthest. Yeah. The poor females that I can see that. 
better. But yeah, that is just an example of um, the marsupial that I've picked. But like I said, all marsupials, so your wombats, your koalas, Tasmanian devils, they all have this amazing kind of three-chambered vagina structure going on. Wow. Really, really, really incredible. So now we're going to move on to our final group and maybe one of the most bizarre but most kind of breathtaking ones we have in our mammals, the monotremes. So let's head there now. So here we are at a familiar case. This mm-hmm. is the monotremes. Why yes. have you brought us here? Why have I brought you to the monotreme? Because when I think of weird and wonderful and fantastical mammals, I don't think there's many more that top the list than this particular group. And you can see here, we'll see the one that we maybe recognize, the platypus, and we also have the echidna beside it. But I want to focus on the platypus today, because it is really a Frankenstein's monster of animals. It yeah. kind of looks almost like a bunch all glued together. If you're looking at certain parts of it, does it, any parts of it look like any animals you can name? Well, to me, it looks like there's like a duck's bill, mm-hmm. and then like a beaver tail, mm-hmm. and then in the middle is a mole or something. <laughs> I like that. That's awesome. Well, yeah, that's, that's exactly what people used to think when these were first discovered. To be actually let you in on a little secret, Richard Owen, who was the first director of this, the Natural Museum here in London, when he heard about the platypus hundreds of years ago, he didn't believe. He was just in a state of utter disbelief. He didn't think it was could, it could possibly be a real genuine animal. So he sort of sent out a demand that he wanted one brought back to him from Australia. Yeah. So one got sent to him and he, yeah, you can actually, we have some of them, the speci- those exact specimens in the collection here at the museum. Wow. But yeah, his you can see his notes on it like impossible. He kinda he was a very famous anatomist, so he took it apart to see where see where the stitches were. Where was the glue piecing this weird animal yeah. together? But then there wasn't one. There wasn't one, yeah. There's no stitches, no glue. I think the platypus, um, when we're looking at mammals, it's really sort of the key in the kind of the missing link between sort of almost like our the reptiles and the mammals yeah. in a way. Because they share a lot of features a lot of with features. reptiles. Um I think when one of the key is the most important features that it actually shares that's most similar almost to reptiles than to mammals is the reproduction, reproductive histories, reproductive strategies. Um, so they have, so if you think of most mammals, you probably think of the penis and the vagina. That's how things happen. That's how things get places. Mm-hmm, right. um, with the platypus, they actually have a cloaca, a bit like amphibians, birds, and reptiles. So sort of just an opening. And this opening, when it comes to mating, a little little platypus penis will come out of, but it generally is just a cloaca, just a small opening. So a cloaca, that's uh, an opening which is for birth, but also like mm-hmm. getting rid of waste. Getting rid of waste, it's a two yeah. for one, or yeah, exactly. So which in... most, like I said, like amphibians, reptiles, and birds, they have one hole, does all sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Whereas most mammals tend to have a more sophisticated yeah, and refined system yeah a bit yes. more separate but for kind of their basics like our birds reptiles amphibians they tend to have this cloaca structure and our platypus and our echidna actually they both have cloacas instead of separate holes but platypus in the group of monotremes like echidnas they actually are a group of egg-laying mammals which kind of blows your mind a little bit yeah that's weird because when you think of mammals you generally think of giving birth to live young that's what you kind of get taught all yeah. the way through school mammals give birth to live young well here we have a group of mammals that do not do that. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Now, so if they lay eggs, do the eggs have shells? So yes, they do have shells, but not like birds, not that kind of hard, kind of kind of crackable shell, yeah, I guess you could say. Yeah, they're like calcified. Yeah, calcified. So these shells are very, very soft, much softer, a bit more like turtle shells. And uh, things so like another that, link with reptiles, they've yeah. got, they're like mm-hmm. leathery mm-hmm. kind of eggs. Yeah, but unlike most reptiles, they don't give birth to many, many, they don't um, lay many, many eggs. 
they tend to only lay, um, a platypus tends to only lay up to two to three maximum eggs. Wow, okay, so not many. Not many at all. Um, and they're laid about 27 days post-mating. So they've mate, and then 27, around 27 days later, they'll, she'll lay female ladies' eggs, and especially in burrow that she'll have spent those 27 days building and making it all cozy and nice for her babies. And then once it's laid, how long does she incubate it's the egg? only 10 days between laying the eggs and these then eggs hatching before the tiny little puggles, as they're known, Aww. come out, which makes them even more adorable. <laughs> so it's kind of like the opposite of the chickens, because chicken eggs are, have an internal development of only maybe a day, mm-hmm. but then outside their incubation can be three, four mm-hmm. weeks or so. Exactly, which is, again, it, these things look almost like birds, but also mammals, but then have this reptile characteristics as well. They're just... A whole smorgasbord of yeah. all the best things of different animals. Because reptiles remarkable. will also have quite a long time mm-hmm. where the egg is out of the body yeah. being incubated. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the platypus is still being very heavily studied because little is known between from kind of post-hatching to adulthood. Because it's known that platypus can live for up to 20 years, but we still know very little about the sort of juvenile stage from after they hatch. They, they think that they kind of feed off their mother's milk um, for up to three to four months, but... After that, it's not really known how long they actually stay with their mother. So the but so platypuses they've got fur and they still feed on their mother's milk. Yeah, but interestingly, they don't. The mother doesn't have a nipple or a teat or an udder. She kind of just seeps through the milk through her kind of fur on her abdomen. Just kind of seeps through, and the young will lap it out through the hairs, which sounds interesting. <laughs> yes, mm, interesting. interesting. So the mother's just got this milky, damp patch that Basically, the baby's drinking yeah. milk from. And she'll sort of like kind of rub her fur to sort of stimulate it. But yeah, but other than that, they'll just lap up. But yeah, so this idea of not having kind of a teat or nipple isn't unique to monotremes, isn't unique to our um, kind of platypus and echidna here. There's different ones, different strategies of releasing milk, but yeah, it's still getting seeped out through the hair. Um, the other thing I really wanted to mention about the duckbill platypus Another reason why I just think they are incredible um, animals is actually that they're one of the only few venomous mammals. So again, when you think of venom, you probably think of things like snakes and the kind of big groups of reptiles, which are known for their venom. But our male, plat- our male platypus in particular here has sort of a venomous spur, if you will. So it's sort of like a little, little horn, little thorny side almost in behind one of its hind limbs. So it's like on their elbows. Yeah, basically like a little elbow horn. Oh, but it's on their, their back legs. So are those for like self-defense? Are they for like if a predator is coming after them? What are so they for? It can be used against predators, but more often than not, it's actually used um, during the very, very competitive mating time to actually get rid of other males. So when it's time to mate, um, they'll actually use this spur against other males. So even though they create this venom themselves, it can still paralyze male of the same species. So when that male's paralyzed, it can go and find a female and hopefully mate. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And is, is it deadly to people? It's not deadly. It can kill small animals, um, so like small dogs and things like that. Right. But it can, apparently it hurts quite a lot. <laughs> From the few that have been sort of stung by the platypus, yeah. it does hurt quite a lot, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, not only do we have an amazing mammal here that lays eggs, also venomous as well. So a real, one of the weirdest but most wonderful mammals I think we have out there and definitely something I'm pretty happy to finish the tour on today. So Annabeth, how did you decide to put together this tour? What, what were you thinking? Mm-hmm. So I was thinking that for a general audience, not for children, or maybe for older children, teenagers and adults, I kind of wanted to go through something a bit weird. I think if it's a bit weird, a bit odd, and maybe some facts that they might not have heard of before, it kind of makes it a bit more 
interesting. And by choosing a topic that, like reproductive strategies, which maybe sounds kind of boring, but actually you're kind of peeling back the layers of that and actually get take something that they know a lot about, yeah. mammals, and actually be like, well, you might not know as much as you think. I think that really challenges people to kind of turn on their own heels a little bit. Yeah. And kind of have a really sit back and think, well, actually, I didn't know this before, yeah. which I think was my general idea. And I picked kind of three kind of really, when you look at them, remarkable looking specimens. Yeah, they're quite nice specimens and displays in the gallery because mm-hmm. they, they stand out quite a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. the kangaroos are very iconic and it's also mm-hmm. a large one. The penguins, not quite so big, mm-hmm. but very unusual looking and they're mm-hmm. in their own case. I so feel they're, like they're quite they're Yeah, they're quite charismatic specimens yeah. to look at as well, really eye-catching. And definitely from previous experience from doing sort of my own reconnaissance in the gallery, I do notice that that's a lot that draws. These are the specimens that do kind of yeah. draw people to them. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially things like the platypus as well, which, yeah, which not is, many people will have seen. No, and it's mm-hmm. it's not a big specimen, but it is called out in there, so it's mm-hmm. already highlights. So it's it's kind of like what some places they call a highlights tour, where mm-hmm. you highlight and give you extra information mm-hmm. about like the highlights of the gallery, things that people yeah. really want to know about. And I think it's really really key for doing sort of kind of older groups or like this sort of style of tour that you leave it open for them to ask questions. Um, rather than me asking you a lot of questions, I thought it was great that you were kind of having the report to ask me questions. So I think for in the other way, for kind of children or family groups, you're definitely you wanting to ask them questions to kind of tick off sort of curriculum links or things like that. Yeah. But for older groups, you're kind of wanting to have... And you had lots of information mm-hmm. like prepared as well, which is quite nice because it's... So you kind of laid the groundwork of information and then other people used it as a... Well, I used it as a launching off point. Exactly. Like I had questions to ask. I think it's really important when you're creating terms like this as well, that the information you're picking could stand on its own and is also very thought-provoking. There's lots of facts to go for, but you don't want to overload with fact after fact after fact. You want to select Absolutely. a good few that kind of make you go, whoa, I didn't realize that. And then kind of builds a rapport and builds a conversation on that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really key for tours like this. Yeah. And you had like a running theme, which makes it seem, mm-hmm. I don't know, more cohesive rather mm-hmm. than just a bit of information, bit of information, mm-hmm. which even if it's really interesting, if it's very separated, mm-hmm. you might not remember it. And I think that's really, really crucial for designing tours as well. You could, it can be very easy to go in and want to look at everything, but that can be incredibly overwhelming for groups. I think yeah. it's very, if you have a theme, that theme can really link and tie everything together really beautifully. And I think that is, like I said, absolutely crucial for tours. So that's one of the things that I um, got down. I've been thinking about what do tour guides actually do when you Mm -hmm. think of it? Like what is the role of a tour guide or as a teacher, what's your Mm -hmm. role um, for your group? And one of the things that tour guides do is uh, information curation, basically. Oh, I like that information curation. Yeah, sounds good. Because there's <laughs> there's so much information, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like there are thousands of papers produced about mammals mm-hmm. every year. There's a huge amount of information, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is really interesting. But that's going to be really overwhelming. But what mm-hmm. the tour guide does is you curate that information. You sort of select the bits and bobs that mm-hmm. are going to be most meaningful to people or grab their mm-hmm. interest or that um, push forward the institutions, mm-hmm. um, whatever their goals are, their messages. Exactly. And I think as well on tours, you can't expect everyone to remember every single possible thing you said. But I think as long as they're leaving with a few sort of factoids or a few sort of kind of mm-hmm. nuggets to take away with them, then you know you've done yeah. your job. Yeah, and that's the mm-hmm. job of what a curator does, isn't mm-hmm. it? Is they take, when a query comes to them, they can go to, they have a, a sense of their whole collection, mm-hmm. but they don't give that person who's asking it their, their whole collection. Single, yeah. They'll select mm-hmm. what that person needs yeah. based on 
on the curator's expertise and then sort of keystone facts exactly, that are going to hold up your whole thing that. together yeah so that's i think a really important thing that tour guides do is information mm-hmm. curation and you need to do that carefully so that mm-hmm. it's meaningful for them at the end and that they can remember things. I was also looking at a paper by Betty Weiler. Uh, it's called The Changing Face of the Tour Guide. Mm. And it kind of is an overview of research and studies on tour guides in various mm-hmm. contexts and what their roles are, what do they do again. And they kind of broke it down into four different um, domains of things that tour guides broker. Mm-hmm. So one is physical access to a space. So in a museum, the that kind of applies to tour guides if you're going behind this behind the scenes somewhere you're kind of one of your roles is to allow the visitor access into those behind the scenes areas that they mm-hmm. wouldn't otherwise yeah i think that's really really important for tour guides because giving them either behind the scenes access or giving them maybe secrets of the institution or something that they feel that they are privy to something that no one else not every single visitor has a chance to it. I think that's so that's so fun yeah. and that's something that they'll yeah. definitely remember. It makes excellent dinner conversation and things like that when they feel that they've been let in on something that yeah. not everyone knows. So that's so that leads to kind of the next domain where the tour guide brokers experiences. Mm-hmm. So that's where you um, you kind of are orchestrating the visitors mm-hmm. or the schools or the your families experience with the institution and the idea there is that it builds some kind of empathy or gives them just a memorable experience Mm -hmm. so very often what uh, a tool to do that is building in a narrative into your tour because if you think about what a narrative is it's it's a story so if you're on a story then you're following maybe a character or some theme through on a journey and because you're with them mm-hmm. on that journey it, you build a sense of attachment oh, to them yeah. you get like that you wouldn't empathy. sort of following like characters in a book or a novel if exactly. you create a journey yeah then you're yeah i like mm-hmm. that that's really good so that's another thing that a really effective tour guide does is it sort of brings the visitor mm-hmm. on that kind of narrative with you mm-hmm. and it doesn't it doesn't literally have to be a narrative of you know an explorer going out to the wild and discovering mm-hmm. this thing it can be a narrative like we did like this mm-hmm. is a this is a trip through different ways mm-hmm. that mammals reproduce this is how it helps them to survive mm-hmm. and it kind of builds you builds a sense of empathy mm-hmm. with those creatures like definitely you get a strong mm-hmm. sense of you know the work and effort that the root has taking care of those mm-hmm. joeys the care maybe that the platypus puts into raising those or taking care of those eggs and then the tiny so the babies platypus. that hatches <laughs> out yeah so that's very good and i think that's a really that's like a role of the tour guide that isn't probably as well showcased is that you are creating that empathy especially in like natural history institutions you're engaging with the public in a way to have create an empathy that they have for the animals to maybe help save them on a conservation side of things. And that might be a really kind of sunshiny Disney message side to it, but it is super important today. It is very important today because mm-hmm. those conservation issues are so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to really keep that bit in mind when you think about uh, another one of the domains that mm-hmm. um, Betty Weiler talks about is this brokering understanding so that's intellectual access to whatever mm-hmm. it is so in this case it's kind of intellectual access to the collections getting information about them or from them mm-hmm. that a visitor might not otherwise be able to get on their own and i think mm-hmm. for for us especially if we or if you've got a really strong background in the topic mm-hmm. you really it's dangerous you can go down this providing 
brokering too much access the super science to black information. Hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or the, the, you know, like the opposite of a black hole, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're like a white hole where you super just spew stuff <laughs> oh, out. I suppose, yeah, super science white hole. <laughs> yeah, where you just, there's just too much information. Yeah. I think it's mm-hmm. really easy. You have to really kind of walk the tightrope on it, kind of really balance between giving the interesting science information they might not be aware of, but making it really accessible so it isn't terrifying to them. It isn't just scientific jargon. It's yeah. actual stuff that they can take take home and remember and maybe spread it to others as well. Yeah. I think that's the goal. <laughs> and that's why I think that thinking of it as brokering access to the information mm-hmm. is really good, is a good way of thinking about it. You're not just giving them information, mm-hmm. you're wanting them to be able to access the information, exactly, which means yeah. that you need to adjust the language that you use so that mm-hmm. it's understandable to them. You know, if some audiences will be able to handle like a lot of really technical jargon because maybe they've got a strong background mm-hmm. in it already. Whereas other audiences, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to need to use metaphors for things because they just can't really handle. Yeah, I think it's definitely important to know your audience and so you can set your own yourself up for success, cater to the needs of your audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is where asking questions can be really useful because mm-hmm. you can kind of get a sense of how much the audience mm-hmm. already knows. Yeah. The last one is kind of a tricky one that is... Um, perhaps more difficult in a museum setting, and that's uh, tour guides as brokering encounters, and that's mm. where you mediate encounters with other people. So within a museum context, it might just more be brokering um, encounters between people on the tour, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, like mediating those social interactions between tour members. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do go behind the scenes and you run into a curator, then you introducing the group to a curator if you're mm-hmm. friendly with them that's brokering an encounter as mm-hmm. well and that can be really special because that's an encounter with someone that they might not otherwise have a chance to mm-hmm. encounter and so a lot of scientists are super into their field especially within a museum setting but that can mean that they might not be so used to speaking with members of the public they might go into using that jargon in which mm-hmm. case you're, you're there to be to the translate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was uh, a second tour yeah. through the Mammal Gallery. Uh, if you enjoyed these last two episodes, you'd like to hear more things mm. like this, you can let us know at our email address, which is knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Because we, we're planning to try and do more sort of behind the scenes audio tours of here at the Naturalist Museum. Um, yeah, so it'd be great to hear if this is something you enjoy. This has been Knowing Nature. I'm Victor. And I'm Annabeth. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks.